I couldn't believe that this was the first time that I was even looking at a friendship, this kind of relationship, in this way before, in a way of like auditing it. And that was startling to me because we are a culture that is just absolutely obsessed with knowledge about ourselves. You know, we know every gram of protein or fat we're eating, every calorie, we wear stupid watches to tell us how many steps we're taking in a day. Marie Kondo has us holding up chairs and asking if they bring joy. And yet the people in our lives, you know, in this category. So I thought, wow, you know, we're leaving a lot on the table until we start really being active and intentional within these relationships and learning how to advocate in them, learning how to create boundaries, looking how to, you know, make sure your demands are met. And then conversely, being really intentional about the other person in the relationship and making sure all those things are true also for them. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, a show from the humans at OnSite. If you're new to this space and just beginning this journey, we hope these episodes are an encouragement, a resource, and an introduction to a new way of being. And if you're well into your journey and perhaps even made a pit stop at OnSite's Living Centered program or one of our other experiences, we hope these episodes are a nudge back towards the depth, connection, and authenticity you found. In this season, we sat down with a dozen of our favorite experts and emotional health sojourners to dig into the topics that are top of mind for all of us. Transition, relationships, trauma, just to name a few. Part practical resource and part honest storytelling that will have you silently nodding along, me too. This podcast was curated with you in mind. So with that, let's dive in. Hey friends, I am so excited about today's episode. We get to sit down with writer and psychotherapist Aaron Falkner. And honestly, I just love this conversation. We talked a lot about adult friendship and she wrote a book called How to Break Up with Your Friends. And so I think just that title is so enticing. But we talked about the reality of what it looks like in friendships as an adult, how to wade into that, how to know when a friendship has kind of done its course and how to have the vulnerable conversations that I don't think we have in our friendships like we do in other relationships in our lives. Lindsay, what do you think about this one? Yeah, I love this conversation. I think being a single woman in my 40s that I had already kind of noticed that one of the things that I was talking to my therapist about a lot was just friend dynamics. And I think that as we get older, our friendships really start to evolve and we have transitions and our friends might not be going through the same transitions that we are. And so I think having intentionality and a awareness of both of ourselves and other people um, can really make all the difference in making us feel like knit into our community, which I think we all want. And so I just loved hearing from Erin and her perspective on bringing that intentionality and awareness into this space. Yeah. And one of my favorite things that you did in this episode was really ground it down into an on-site experience and talk about what I think so many of our alum feel. How do I take this blueprint that I've gotten for relationships and community and leaning in and vulnerable conversation and intentionality? How do I take that into the real world and in my real relationships? So just stay tuned for her answer. It was really good. All right. I'm ready for you to meet Erin. 
Welcome, Erin. We're so excited that you're here. And I'm just really excited to dig into this conversation all about friendships. As we get into this episode, Lindsay and I thought we might even bring like examples that we're currently facing in our friendships to talk to you about. Uh, right. But will you tell us a little bit about who you are and why you think friendships matter? Yeah. So my name is Erin Falconer. I am a writer in a past life, a digital entrepreneur, and I'm also a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a Canadian living in Los Angeles and uh, Venice Beach, actually. Mm-hmm. And I split my time between writing and seeing clients. And so I was looking for a follow-up for my first book, yeah. uh, which was really rooted in the female productivity space, mm-hmm. female empowerment, although I think this one is also very much rooted in that. Having trouble coming up with a follow-up to that book, as I like to joke, much to my agent's frustration, and uh, was going down a lot of dead ends, wasn't really feeling every, you know, anything, and woke up one morning at 6 a.m., half awake, half asleep, and this phrase, how to break up with your friends, was just in my head. And I was like, what? Kind of tried to go back to sleep, couldn't really. And for the next couple of days, it just kept resurfacing, kept resurfacing. Mm. And I was... I had had lunch, a lunch plan with an old friend of mine who was famously late. And I was sitting waiting for her at the restaurant and I was waiting and waiting. And as I was waiting, I noticed how angry I was. I was really becoming angry. I mean, for lack of a better word. And I kind of caught myself and I was like, whoa, the level of your feelings about this right, right now don't quite match, you know, the crime, so so to speak. What's that all about? And so because she was (laughs) late, I had some time to kind of just quickly go over the landscape of the friendship and be like, how, how do we get here? Right. Because outwardly I would have said, this is one of my best friends, like to anybody who asked. And yet when I started to look at the relationship, I noticed that there was this big chasm that had grown Hmm. and I was like, so I had that kind of first epiphany, like, wait a second, are we even best friends? Are we, are we even friends at this point? You know, and this is all happening really fast as I'm, I'm sitting waiting for her to come, you know, arrive. And so that was the first big epiphany. But the second epiphany that was really the thing that stuck with me. And I was like, oh, there's a book here is that I couldn't believe that this was the first time that I was even looking at a friendship, this kind of relationship in this way before, in a way of like auditing it, you know, and that was startling to me because we are a culture that is just absolutely obsessed with knowledge about ourselves. You know, we know every gram of protein or fat we're eating, every calorie, we wear stupid watches to tell us how many steps we're taking in a day. Marie Kondo has us holding up chairs and asking if they bring joy. And yet the people in our lives, you know, in this category. So I thought, wow, you know, we're leaving a lot on the table until we start really being active and intentional within these relationships and learning how to advocate in them, learning how to create boundaries, looking how to, you know, make sure your demands are met. And then conversely, being really um, intentional about the other person in the relationship and making sure all those things are true also for them. Anyways, I was really excited. I whipped this proposal together <laughs> really quickly. 
and ended up selling it February 23rd, 2020. I thought it was an amazing idea then. Three weeks later, we went down into national lockdown. lockdown yeah. And I could not have possibly fathomed mm. how important, you know, friendships just generally and then understanding the valuable roles in your life when all of a sudden all of those relationships essentially got cut off from us, yeah. or at least in the way we knew in this new normal of the pandemic. And so, yeah, sorry, that was a very long answer to your. <laughs> to I love that. I remember um, sitting down with, a, a group of women about 15 years ago. And one of the women was talking about her sort of process of evaluating friendships. Yeah. And she talked about how she sort of had three different categories that she put people into kind of her very important people, her very draining people and her very negative people. And I remember hearing her say that 15 years ago and it just blowing my mind because wow. it was the first time kind of like you that I thought, Oh, wow, like I can spend time and think about these things. They're not just things that I inherited that I have to carry with me forever. I think I spent a lot of my 20s and 30s just kind of lugging everyone along. Yeah, and it's exhausting. And it was exhausting. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of friends. (laughs) Quote, unquote. (laughs) Quote, unquote, friends. Yeah, but it, it was pretty tiring. And so I'm with you. I feel like there is like a dearth of resources that Mm -hmm. really help us understand how to evaluate our friendships. And then also like in my 40s had a child. So in a different season than a lot of my friends are, um, one of my close friends has been navigating a divorce and new singlehood. It's like a lot of us have these like major life things happening. Someone else just met someone that I think they'll marry. And it's like we're navigating major life transitions in different seasons and trying to stay together. And I don't feel Mm -hmm. like there are a lot of resources that tell us how to do that well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And when I started, when I started out with, you know, right at the beginning of writing the book, I, one of my big things was like, how come, what is so different about this category of relationship? Mm -hmm. One of the things that kind of dawned on me is that, you know, as, as I said, at the top, I'm a therapist and in classic, therapy, psychotherapy, you have individual therapy, you have couples therapy, you have family therapy, but there's no such friendship therapy doesn't exist. And what that means to me is that not that necessarily friend couples should run and seek a therapist. Um, Although it's not a bad idea if you've been friends for 20 years and (laughs) really valuable to you, you know, and somehow things have, you know, got gone off track. But what it means to me more than that is that there's no collectively agreed upon language out there in the zeitgeist of how to navigate conflict within these relationships. There's no starting starting point of like, what's the even conversation starter look like? to start changing and really being intentional in a relationship. And then if, of course, if, if things are not going well, to start the conversation of this isn't working for me, right? Mm-hmm. There's no blueprint of what even a good friendship looks like, how to get into a new one, how to be out of an existing one. And so that was one of the big thrusts for me in this book was to create language around all of these things, you know, around all of these circumstances so that it doesn't feel so strange like you're being super because right now it just feels like you're being really extra and I want to normalize the fact that these are like any relationship it doesn't matter if you talk you know if you talk to a two people that have been married for a long time they say what's your secret you say it takes oh hard work a lot of hard work and patience and understanding 
the same thing has to be true. There's no such thing as a conflict-free, healthy relationship. Then that's no. not your, that's not a relationship. That's some kind of relationship, but it's not a healthy one, right? It's a nice one maybe, but it's not something that like is real and active and alive. Mm. And if you're in those relationships, even if on the surface, they're nice, if they're not giving, they're taking. Mm. And so that's it's much better to be able to roll up your sleeves and say, hey, let's get into this, you know, in a respectful, kind way. Because that's the thing that's going to start giving back to you, as opposed to, to your point earlier, Lindsay, of like dragging all these things along. These are these relationships along. These are things that are going to start to now give back to you in a meaningful way. Hey, friends, Mackenzie here. I wanted to quickly interrupt this interview to share a short story with you. A few years ago, I was listening to an onsite alum share their story and something clicked inside of me. I realized that while nothing was wrong in my life, I actually began to wonder if there was more I was missing. What if the overwhelming feeling of anxiety and stress that I had just accepted as my normal didn't have to be a part of my life? What if my relationships didn't drain me and I could actually set the boundaries to create the type of relationships I wanted to exist in? What if I could interrupt the narratives that I had just accepted as fact? Shortly after, I attended Onsite's Living Center program, and I started on my own journey of more. More peace, more clarity, more fun, more wholeness. I want to invite you to explore that more. There's nothing wrong with you. But what if there's more? If you've been considering an Onsite program for a while, or if this is the very first time, I invite you to dare to consider the possibility that the more you're seeking, is actually something we all deserve. You can explore our offerings at experienceonsite.com or connect with one of our incredible admissions team members at 1-800-341-7432. They'd love to have a confidential call with you and connect you to the right resource for you. I don't love conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, I, even uh, at work, I feel like I do a better job of conflict mm-hmm. and hit it head on. But in my relationships, a lot of times, like I will avoid, avoid, avoid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like kind of keep things on the smooth and easy. But how does that work for you? Not great. You know, <laughs> I think a lot of times then things boil up and I just want to explode. I never really do. I just. Yeah, you're just like swallowing it and swallowing it. And then you have like a bit of a latent anxiety every time you're hanging out with the person or or talking to them. And it's just kind of like, and again, that's just like an example of your energy, you know, draining energy as opposed to having something that creates energy for you. Um, And yeah, these things are not easy to do at the beginning, right? Like that's why it just feels so awkward and weird where it's like, because nobody's really having these conversations or advocating for yourself where you feel like, Oh God, like you talk yourself out of things all the time because it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, it's just a friend. I don't, you know, it's not like we have shared bank accounts. I don't, you know, yeah, I don't need yeah. to make this, you know, but you do, if you want to get something back from it, yeah, that feels gratifying. And the, the truth is the more we practice it, the more automatic pilot becomes. I feel like now in romantic relationships, it's so, especially like dating before you're married, like it's, it's really not everybody does it, but it's very common to talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, expectations and boundaries with your friends about whoever you're dating. It's very common now to talk with somebody you're just newly started dating. Say, this is what I'm expecting. This is what I 
Yeah. Right. Now, if you think about doing that with friendships, it's like cringe. Right. But what why what is the difference? Right. When I think about the way that we commemorate romantic relationships and the way we like memorialize the beginning and the middle stages and we have like celebration milestones and and then there's a grieving process that comes when things end. And I don't think I've done that well with friendships like you know, when you're in a dating relationship and you're like, we both know this is coming to an end or I'm mm-hmm. making an effort to say what we have created is no longer going to exist. Mm-hmm. Instead with friends, I've just ghosted or I've like bared it, swallowed it, swallowed it, swallowed it, like Lindsay's been saying. And then I just kind of like awkward jellyfish out and that's not how you want to end a relationship. And so I know your book is called like how to break up with your friends, but really you, you joked in another interview about wanting to call it friend therapy mm-hmm. and you only have one chapter on actually breaking up, but how, yes. like, I don't know. I just wonder how do we start to implement some of these things and in it look on a practical level. I think about a current relationship in my life where I think we want different things out of the friendship. Mm -hmm. I think we were really close in a different season. Our lives were really aligned. Mm -hmm. And there's some things that have shifted. And I don't know how to say what we had no longer exists. I'm still interested Mm -hmm. in something, but I Mm -hmm. think you want something different than I do. That's weird. That's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. And again, it's the type of thing where we just need to practice doing these things until they start to become a lot more normalized. Hmm. Um, So the first thing you want to look at, like in that situation is what's the length of the relationship. In other words, do I owe this relationship something? And if it's any meaningful length of time, if you have gone through, as you said, like a valuable season of your life together. Yeah. Yes. Um, If it's a new friend you met, six months ago that you were really excited about and now not so much upon realizing, you know, you know, the real, really how they are. That's a totally different scenario. So I'm going to assume this is somebody that has like some history and some weight in your life. The next thing you want to look at. So, so you've assumed you've established this is a meaningful, this has been a meaningful relationship. The next thing you want to establish is, are you both kind of floating in different directions and at least subconsciously aware of that. And if you are, Mm -hmm. then that's okay. You can let that, you can let, that's not ghosting. That's like just letting the natural ebb and flow of, you know, the, the universe, like just kind of separate you gracefully. Yeah. The problem arises when one of you is aware that you're in different places and the other seems to not or yeah. even if they are aware, do not disregard it and are just want to be in for the fight to keep the relationship yeah, kind of at all costs. Then there's a difference of expectation and mm-hmm. that's, you need to address that because if in a perfect world, right? Because yeah. what happens is if you don't right now, let's say the defining moment or memory of your relationship is, oh, these warm formidable memories that you had together. When you think about that, you think about the relationship lovingly and that provides energy. What happens if you go past the due date on this and you're in different places, but one is still trying advocating to very much to keep in it. What's going to happen is you're going to end up feeling irritated and Mm -hmm. guilty because somebody keeps trying to engage you that you don't feel compelled to engage with. And they are going to feel hurt Because they're trying to engage you and you're essentially 
keep, it's a dead end. It keep, keep coming to yeah. end. So then what becomes a defining moment of the relationship is not that warm and beautiful thing that happened in the past. It's the ugly end. It's the ugly yeah. end. It's the irritating. God, why doesn't this person just get it? I keep saying no. What, what is it going to take for her to get it? And then the other person's going, mm. what's wrong with me? I don't understand. And she's making a lot of excuses for you. And like, she must be really busy. Like, da, da, da. So then that gets into a really kind of ugly place. And it's replaced yeah. the thing that's power that was powerful and beautiful. And so, you know, tough conversation to have. But you know, if you lead with it is out of respect for the tremendous value this relationship has provided me that I feel like I am letting you down. I don't have mm-hmm. the same bandwidth or capacity for this relationship I once had. And I know that might be for hard for you to hear, but I honestly mm-hmm. think it's what's best for the relationship if we, and then you fill in the blank. If it's like a, you're out then that's one conversation. And I outline kind of how to talk about that in one chapter. It's like, if it's really like it's over, it sounds like in this instance, you might want to just really dial it down um, and have an expectation correction there. So then in that case, you say, this is what my capacity is. And I'd love to share that part of you with it. What I don't want to happen, what I don't want to risk happening is me constantly feel like I'm not meeting your needs within this relationship. And then, you feeling hurt. And so I just, it was really important to me because I value this relationship to be clear. While Erin was talking, I couldn't help but think that the thing that holds me back the most from leaning into these conversations is fear. It's the fear of the unknown and the fear of how the other person will respond. Often in my own friendships, I can label them as additive, supplemental, or nice to have even second tier to the romantic or family relationships that I hold. I feel less secure in my friendships often because there isn't, quote, something holding us together like I might have in other relationships. I wonder if you feel that way. But I love how Erin continues to encourage us to lean in and view our friendships with the highest regard and importance. We deserve good friends, and our friends deserve a friend willing to fight for health and connection in the relationship. Throughout this conversation, Erin continues to encourage us to step into this space despite the discomfort, and I'm so grateful. You always want to lead with courage, and that's the most courageous thing to do in this. You know, if it really scares you to do it, you're probably on the right track. That's good. Yeah, I love that. I think what it brings to mind for me is a lot of times in our friendships, we're operating without clearly defined expectations. Yes, exactly. And so I'm curious if there is like a way that you think about what reasonable expectations mm. are at different levels of friendship. That's or good. if those are just like individualized is like you sit down with your best friend and kind of talk about those. Like how have you seen people navigate mm. communicating their expectations well? Well, first of all, it's always easier to do this right at the beginning. It's hard. It's not impossible and it should be done in the middle of a relationship. But so for any new friend, people that are getting to new friendships, like we've got to have this top of mind. Let me be clear about what I'm kind of expecting here. And it's not necessarily saying, hey, these are my expectations of this relationship. 
But I think what happens with a new friend is we kind of get excited. That's the power mm -hmm. of friendships, right? You, you have that kind of thing. Like, I really like this person. And so what you start to do is whenever they ask for a plan or you're rushing to make plans and you're kind of getting out of your normal course of who you are, you're kind of accommodating more, you're kind of available more. And that's not necessarily where the dust is going to lie, right? And so right from the beginning, just being able to like monitor yourself and you you teach people how to treat you, right? So the frequency with which you make a plan, the frequency with which you start setting up a phone call or a FaceTime or a text thing right from the beginning, you want to pay attention to those things and say, okay, what is my bandwidth for this new person? I just met somebody at a, a cocktail party at a friend's house who I really liked. I, I hit it off with her right away. And it's kind of that magic thing, right? Where like you yeah. just need somebody like, yeah, this person's really interesting. I'm curious about her. We seem to have some, you know, shared tastes and all this, blah, blah, blah. And then <laughs> this is such an LA thing at the, at the end of the, like as the, the dinner party or cocktail party is coming to close, she says, Oh, well, we should really hang out. And I said, Oh yeah, totally. Uh, where do you live? And she says Los Feliz, which is like downtown Los Angeles. And I live in Venice by the beach. And for those that don't know, that is like, you'll never see her. <laughs> opposite ends. Those are opposite ends of the city. And it was just like, oh. and, you know, before I would have been like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And there's literally no chance I'm driving to Los Feliz for dinner. Like I'm not doing it for my best <laughs> let's just friend. be realistic. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I said that to her in the moment. I said, ah, oh. I said, God, that sucks. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, I'm just not going to be able to see you. I said, but if you are ever in Venice, because some people come down to Venice because it's by the beach. I said, but if you come down to Venice, give me a call. I would be happy to, to meet you for lunch. That would be great. And I said, if I happen to ever be over there, I'll call you. Um, and I'd love to get lunch with you. But I right up. So that was, a, that's a good example of just knowing, like, there's just no way. There's just no way. Because, and before I would have tried to make it over there. I might've done it once. I would have arrived psychotic like from the traffic, you know what I mean? And it's just like, I've done that so many times where it's just like, no. Or you would have been in the texting game of like, what about this day? What about this day? How about here? And it never happens. And you've wasted both of your time. Which is just the worst. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's even more common. Like, let's make plans. And then six months later, you haven't been able to. Yeah. And then it kind of leaves, it makes me leave, have a bad taste in my mouth about the person. It's probably about me, but I'm just kind of like, oh, you know, yeah. which is yeah. like. See, I'm still talking about this girl <laughs> fondly, publicly. I still have really warm, I, she, I hope she moves to the West Side. You know what I mean? Have you ever, you've never had an interaction with her? She's never hooked never. up with you when she's in Venice? No, I'll probably see her this year at this annual. It's a, it's a holiday cocktail party. I'm hoping I see her there. I don't know, but I'll give her a big hug. There you go. See, any plans to move to the West Side? <laughs> but look at how, I, you know, she, just that little encounter and I... I love knowing she's out there and that's way better. It's like than th the alternatives we talked about. I once heard this analogy about friendships and I've used it a lot of like, you've got flower friends, you've got weed friends and you've got oak trees. And I think we tend to not value the flower friends of, Hey, I saw you at a cocktail party and we'll see each other at the same cocktail party every year. And it'll be right. great. You'll be like really the flowers great. that come in and bring brightness Yes. And we, I think as an adult, I feel this tendency to make every friendship an oak tree friendship. Right. And I've gotten better and I don't value the nice warm feelings where I can be realistic of what the expectation is. 
instead right. of beating myself up for not being able to commit and say, yeah, I can show up and be whatever you need me to be. Yeah. You need about five solid trees that can't all be oak trees. Yeah. You want to look at that inner circle. I call it your inner circle, but this yeah. I like this analogy just as well. And say, these are the five people that given all of the BS that life can throw your way, somehow between the five of them, mm-hmm. there's somebody that can got me covered, right? And then you hope that you're somebody's oak or maple tree or a couple people's oak or maple's trees, right? And those are the ones that you really got to take care of. You got to water, they need sunshine, you know, you need to go talk to them nicely, you know, whatever it takes to, <laughs> to grow this vegetation. And you should be able to really rely on those, on, on, on these relationships. Again, they shouldn't, they don't all necessarily need to be the your 3am call, God forbid. Yeah. They can be the person that is, if you're a very stressed out type A person, that every time you, you are with them, they provide levity and joy and perspective. And mm-hmm. that is just as important as a 3M call, if not sometimes more important sometimes. But what you want to make sure is you, they're not all the same and you That's haven't great. created an echo chamber in your world, right? So you want to make sure they don't come. You want the people that have the same kind of background as you, a couple, who just know your experience without having to explain it to them and, you know, and know who you really are and who you were. Those, those are what I call nostalgic friends. Those are really important. And then you need, a, you know, three or four more that bring different parts of you out and alive, teach you, have the ability to mm. teach you different things about the world and yourself, have dissenting opinions on some things, have come from different parts of the world, maybe are a different age. Maybe, you know, you just, the more diverse the, that inner kind of circle is, the more you grow as an individual. Because friendships have the ability, because you're not sharing bank accounts and children and all of that stuff, to really authentically be who you are, mm. not consequence-free, but without the restraint, you know, the, the handcuffs of other things where there are performative elements to, for example, romantic or family relationships, which do not exist in friendships. So there's actually a, a tremendous amount of freedom and authenticity that other categories don't provide. And so and Aristotle talks about this actually, and says that friendships are really the mirror of who you are and who you can be. And then beyond the the, the trees, then yes, you're right. There's a whole lot, a second tier layer that doesn't involve the responsibility, but but can provide support, can be really invaluable. Like your work friends, if you have children, then you're like soccer mom friends or yeah. your you know fill in the bank friends. Those are functional friends, and they provide a lot of value. You just don't want to be grouping them with the trees. Those mm. are a different category. They demand less. They give less, but they're valuable. And then there's like that outside chair, also kind of in, quite important, like the, the girl I'm going to see at this cocktail party. So I kind of at an acquaintance level, but still valuable in its own right, if you view it that way. That's really good. I feel like I'm learning so much. Thank you so much <laughs> for how clearly you stated that. And I'm definitely like processing all my friendships and feeling better about them and how I have them organized than maybe I had felt about them before. I love where Lindsay takes this conversation next. She circles it around to ask a really practical question for anyone who's attended a Living Centered Experience or another group workshop at OnSite. We often share that our group rooms hold as much healing as the time spent around the fire, eating breakfast, 
out in the patio and just having meaningful conversation with other people. I was given a model and an example of relationships that I had never experienced before. I remember leaving my on-site experience knowing I'd shared something incredibly intimate and special with these people. I wasn't sure how to translate that vulnerability, intimacy, and just connection into my relationships outside the on-site bubble. One thing that I think is true when someone experiences one of our group programs, like the Living Centered program, Mm -hmm. you know, we've got people in these small group therapeutic communities and Mm -hmm. then sort of larger, uh, a larger group as well. And they all connect and Mm -hmm. they have shared this super vulnerable experience together. They've done deep, important work together. And I think that it's so powerful because a lot of times, like you're talking about, they come from totally different backgrounds and they can Mm -hmm. see each other. Maybe they can learn a little perspective that maybe they didn't have before because they've heard up close somebody's story and their experience. And so I think it's really beautiful. Like people get so close during the week and then they go home and then they have the sense that they want all of their friendships to feel like, like that. they're on-site friends, you know, right. yeah. they're miles exactly. friends. They want that shared vulnerability. They want the space to be able to process with each other and to be able to hold each other up in the same way. And so I think a lot of times, maybe without knowing it, they have these new expectations for friendships mm-hmm. that they don't know how to communicate or um, navigate. And I'm just curious what your advice would be um, as, you know, a therapist that is probably experiencing things like that for people of like, how do they go back and steward that well and begin to lean into the vulnerability they experienced at onsite or milestones, but also in a healthy way that doesn't scare people off. It doesn't put a lot of weight on their other friendships that just maybe don't have that capacity. That's interesting. Right. So the first thing is, is that not all relationships are created equal and not everybody is going to be your absolute best friend and that's okay. And they have, but if you've identified new people that you like and you want to bring that kind of level of authenticity into this, or even, or it might not be a new relationship that you found, but an existing relationship, you want to bring that level of authenticity authenticity. The first thing I think you can do is not necessarily demand something from them, but model what you've learned in terms of what your own active listening experience is, what your own, how much you show up energetically in front of them, really being there, right? Because there's a reason that those relationships work and that's because both people are showing up and it's easy to go, Oh, when I went into this new relationship, it just didn't feel the same as my ones, but you also got to look at yourself first. How much more authentically did you show up in that group? Because a lot of times we're dialing in the behavior with our friends, right? So it's the same old thing you go and then you're kind of waiting for something alchemical to happen. Well, you can be the thing that is alchemical, which is like a real awareness to your behavior, to how much you're paying attention, listening, asking questions, modeling what you want back, right? And it's contagious. It's a really good litmus test to see what is the capacity. Does the person, the other person have a bit of capacity for this, right? Do they notice, first of all, even the shift in you? 
because that would be the first thing, right? You show up, you show up energetically in a more intentional space. Again, you're not showing up with a phone. It's I'm turning even something arriving to a coffee with a, with an old friend after, after the group experience saying, I just felt so happy to be sitting you with a coffee. In fact, I'm going to turn my phone off and just be focused on you. And that's not preachy. That's what you're going to do. You're not asking anybody else to do, but it's like, Oh, all right. Some different energy showed up here. Right. And it's hard not to notice that you can also just talk about the positive experience you did have. Right. You can just say, I just had this kind of revolutionary experience where I was sitting with this group that just felt so connected and so X, Y, and Z, whatever really resonated with you. And I made a promise to myself. One of the things I made a promise to myself was after leaving this, I want to try and embody some of that in my current relationships. And again, it's not about, it's about what you're going to do. And then you want to see if the person can dance with you. Right. And you got to give them some time because they haven't had that necessarily that big experience. Give that a try and see how that's received and then, you know, take it from there. Hmm. That's so good. I think something we often say at Onsite is you can't be connected to other people if you're not first connected with yourself. And so oh, absolutely. I love that a lot of this conversation and even your book starts with what kind of friend are you? Like, how do you assess the type of friend you are? And I was wondering if you would kind of take us through that. Like you're saying, if I'm showing up differently, if I want to show up differently, how do I even begin that work before I set expectations in my relationships to turn inward and be like, what do I want? Or who am I? And how can I, how can I cultivate the type of relationships I want by first starting with me? If that makes sense. Absolutely. And in the book, that's the first chapter. I think it's the first friendship is your own. The first thing that I like to say, and this is in or outside of relationship, but for anybody that's interested in self-growth and improving themselves, you always start with yourself and you need to have the answers to four questions. Who am I? Where am I? How did I get here? And where do I want to go? And these are not answers you just scribble down. Oh, this is who I am. This is where, you know, right. This is stuff that takes some time, right? You got to really sit with yourself over the course of days or weeks and really figure out like, what's the snapshot of who I am right now, who I want to be. And until you have those questions answered relatively confidently, it's almost impossible to be showing up with your A game relationally with anybody, right? It's really hard for ad to advocate for needs or have agency in a, in a relationship when you don't know what needs you're really advocating for. And you're assuming that somebody else should understand what those needs are when you don't even know what those needs are, right? And so really getting down to the fundamentals, really trying, and it's hard, it's daunting. You don't have to have like, this is who I am. This is what, you know, it's not like a military exercise. It's more of an almost felt sense where it's like, right, right. This is how I want to show up in the world. This is how I want to be seen in the world. These are the things that matter to me. These are the things not so much. Then you can start being clear about how to advocate for yourself in those ways, whether that's setting up boundaries, where that, whether that is, you know, just having expectations set and met. I love how practical this conversation is. It really did provide a prompting to tune into ourselves. And like so many things in our lives, Erin pointed out that our scripts for friendships come from our earliest memories and family systems. We often do friendship in adulthood how we saw it modeled in our childhood. This was such a fascinating revelation for me, 
and an invitation to look at my own narratives around what friendship should look like. A lot of good information when you're looking now relationally, right, is to go back to your childhood and say, like, how was friendship modeled for me, right? How did my parents do, my mom do do friendship, my dad do friendship, how did they do it together? That's what I saw, so I probably adopted a lot of that, but is that who I am? And I have a story, like, my parents were very social. They were very individual and in a way private, but then had this kind of very like outgoing social, this group of friends that are always having dinner parties and always, you know, kind of always together in these social things. My mom loved to cook and throw dinner parties and I watched it and it was a lot of fun and they always seemed to be having a great time. So I kind of thought like, well, that's how you do friendship. And, you know, I actually talk about this a little bit in my first book, but I ended up like, throwing parties and throwing dinner parties and it would be so stressful for me. And, you know, I had a, you know, I talk about this in the first book where I had a meltdown in Whole Foods. We're having a dinner party on Friday and I was just running around. Like I had on top of that, I had my, my internet company was very about entertaining and all of this kind of stuff. And I ended up having this total meltdown that bled then into the dinner party later that night. And I was like, I don't understand this. Like, am I a bad friend? Why do I not want to do this? And it was in that moment where I was like, wait, that's the first time you've said, I don't want to do this like to yourself. And I was like, I don't want to do what, like what, what this is part of being, you know, this is how one shows up, you know, socially. And I was like, wait, is it? Because that's not who I am at all. I don't want to throw these dinner parties. I'm fine to be invited, but I would much rather do X, Y, and Z. And that's what I find like energizing and meaningful. And so you want to check like, what were the role models in your life around friendship? In this next section, Erin briefly touches on the concept of secure attachment and how our relationships with our earliest caretakers can impact our friendships today. If you want to learn more about the concept of attachment, we have two really great episodes on this topic in the archives. You can head to episode 61 and episode 71 with therapists Crispin Mayfield and Jessica Baum. You also want to look at your very early upbringing. You know, what... How were you brought into the world in those early years? Did you have what we would call like a secure attachment where, you know, at least one caregiver was there making Mm -hmm. sure all of your needs were met consistently? Did that look like kind of a healthy, happy-esque home, right? For those first three years, you probably then have a secure attachment, which means you trust other people with relative ease. You're consistent. You understand, you know, you understand the kind of basics of, of, of healthy relationships. Knowing that this really informs, unless you've done work to try and get yourself. And the good news is you can, you can form secure attachments at any, any point in your life. But if you don't have that story and you are having issues, that is probably also showing up in your friendships. Mm, And that's another thing. Hey, look at myself. Am I feeling like I need validation? I need proof of whatever. Then that could be putting stress on that relationship, right? Like there's so much that you can do to show up in, in the more fully formed version of yourself. And that will ultimately help all of your relationships. Mm, That's so So it really starts with you is the, is the short, is the short answer. So fascinating. I'm curious, um, 
my experience a little bit of therapy and just some other things like this, like as you bring awareness to them, a lot of times they feel kind of a little messier and more chaotic before they get better. And so I'm curious about, you know, like take us back to that lunch that you, this idea started percolating and now, Mm -hmm. you know, you've spent years writing this book and publishing it. How have your friendships expanded or grown since you've sort of put more of a framework around them and been more intentional with them. When asked this question, Erin lit up. Her entire demeanor changed. She then returned to the friend who served as a catalyst for this exploration and work. You know, the one who was chronically late. She shared that at some point in the process of writing her book, she decided she wanted to confront her friend about the chronic tardiness. She convinced herself to put into practice what she was writing about and tell her friend she valued the relationship and invite her into repair around this rip that she felt in their friendship. But when the day came and her friend was inevitably late, she caught herself doing what I think most of us would do, talking herself out of the hard conversation, downplaying her frustrations. She began making up excuses and convincing herself she shouldn't confront her friend but inevitably she plunged ahead and did it. And as she shared with us, approaching her friendships in this way has been one of the most rewarding things she has ever done. And I was really nervous. But the truth is the hardest part is just starting. Yeah. It's like those one or two sentences say, hey, so listen, I wanted to talk to you about something. And of course, immediately she's like this because my tone was serious. And I then I just kind of like, I, I practice it quite a few times in my head, you know, generally broad strokes, what I was going to say and wasn't super complicated. But once I got talking about it, it actually kind of felt, you know, found its own rhythm. But the thing about it that was important is that she then said to me, not even really that defensively at some point during the conversation, well, you know, I'm glad you bring this up because da, 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 you've also been bothering me with da, 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 da. And We had like a great, it was tense, honestly, at some points, you know, it was like, you know, there's a lot of emotion in it. And we walked away from it in in fairly good. Like it wasn't terrible. Nobody stormed out of the restaurant. And then we both went home and kind of reflected on it. And and, um, things have been very, very good since then. So I wrote the whole book. I interviewed all these people. I talked about all of these, you know, examples. And I realized like, I think like five days before I was due to hand the book in that I hadn't interviewed my very best friend, um, (laughs) Sophie. And I'd been so caught up in like problems and workshopping problems and stuff like that, that I was like, okay, but I need to talk about a relationship that really works. So in the book, I wrote a quiz that you can do with like a conversation starter, essentially. It's not a quiz, a conversation starter. I think it's a form of like 10 or 15 questions and I invited Sophie over, my best friend, and, and uh, she came and she was very heavily pregnant. She sat down in front of me and she said, okay, well, what are we doing here? And I'm like, well, we're going to talk. We're going to ask each other these questions. She's like, this is so weird. What are we, what? And I was like, just do it, do it with me. And so we did it and it was unbelievable. Like even that, and we were like the best of friends. We're like, you know, sisters. We have a great relationship, but that even brought up some things. And it opened up the, this conversation. Again, it's like the safest space possible because we're on good terms, you know, and we're as close as can be. 
But even that like allowed for an expansiveness within this relationship. And we always joke about that was about that was like a couple of years now. We always joke about it. She's like, do we need to do the quiz again? Do we need to do we need? And, and honestly, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Erin, a lot of times to finish out interviews, we'll ask people sort of one practice that they have mm-hmm. that is sort of helping keep them grounded or centered in their day to day. Is there any daily practice that you believe in? Yes. And I tell this to every single one of my clients. This isn't necessarily a relationship thing, but certainly could apply. It's just a simple breathing exercise. And it's four, seven, eight. I don't know if you've heard of it. You breathe in through the nose for four. You hold your breath for seven. You breathe out uh, through the mouth for eight. You do that four times. And I tell everybody I know, not just clients, friends, to attach that to a habit. So whether it's brushing your teeth in the morning or, you know, something in the evening, so that you do this every day, it is really unbelievable for regulation, immediately calming you down. And it's almost Pavlovian that if you do it consistently enough, that just thinking about it, like in a moment of stress, if you're public, you know, if you're a public and it feels just thinking about it can start to calm your heart rate and have you come regulated. It's used a lot for PTSD, um, soldiers, simple. It couldn't be more simple than this, but you can Google it and the, 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 the results are numerous and so I do that every day and if you do it and then you do it you you you, you do you take it like a Xanax if you're going to do a big speech do this before you instead of anything else <laughs> and it's just amazing how much it calms you and centers you and uh, feels like comforting so that's what mm-hmm. I do every day I love the idea of habit stacking it like connecting it with a mm-hmm. habit like when you get in bed or when you plug your phone in or when you brush your teeth that's so exactly when I do this I then do that and it's otherwise this gets lost. It's like, oh, I forgot to do that. Oh, I because you never forget to brush your teeth or I hope not. Or, you know, you never forget to go to bed. Yeah. So attaching it to something. Well, thank you so, so much for this conversation. Yes. Uh, where are all the places that people can find you and get your book? So the book you can get on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, I think most indie booksellers. And then me, you can find me at Aaron Faulkner or my blog at Pick the Brain on all things social and then pickthebrain.com is my blog. Awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for listening to the Living Center podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love for you to consider leaving us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. It only takes a few seconds to navigate to the show in your app and select the stars to begin your rating. It helps more people find the show and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much.